Hi, this is Ariana Roberts, and you're listening to Arcana Imperii. Today's guest is Kyle York. He is the co-founder and CEO of York IE, a venture capital firm. He was also the chief revenue officer and founding member for Dyne, a DNS tech company in Manchester, New Hampshire, that was later acquired by Oracle. We now turn to the interview. Thank you so much, Mr. York, for coming to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Um, so I guess my first question for you is, like, what would be a career path for a VC or an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I think you have different tracks, right? So there's lots of uh, folks who end up going and working in startups who end up in a track where they're learning a lot, you know, whether they're an engineer where they work in finance, uh, whether they work in sales or marketing, where they go in and work at a startup and love the environment, the culture, the growth, the challenges, the wearing multiple hats. So that was my track in entrepreneurship. You know, I, I grew up in a family business, but I ended up working in small tech companies in sales and marketing roles. And that led to me wanting you know, climbing the ladder and then wanting to be an entrepreneur myself. Um, so that's one track for an entrepreneur. Uh, track for an investor or VC, many of them um, end up in, in working for venture capital firms or investment banks or private equity firms as their first jobs. And they started as an associate or an analyst and they kind of grow into a principal and a VP and a managing partner and a general partner. So those are like very like kind of linear tracks to the kind of growth and those people might decide to go start a fund on the on the ladder uh someday um and occasionally you will see someone who works in a company who then becomes a vc uh, a lot of times that's founders who made money um and other times you will see vcs who will jump to the entrepreneurial track because they'd rather be an operator um so they are different entirely different tracks but occasionally you'll see a, a leap uh from one to the other so what makes one VC or a VC firm more successful than another one? Well, I mean, it's all about the founders you back, right? And the success of the companies. Uh, the larger uh, the company, the bigger the valuation, uh, the, the more money you make, right? So uh, the way a VC fund works is... Um, they raise capital from what's called a limited partner, an LP. Um, those LPs in most traditional venture funds are endowments, pension funds, fund of funds, ultra high net worth individuals, RIAs. Um, they get a pool of capital, they raise a fund and they take a management fee to manage that money. And then uh, they manage and deploy that money into startups and then take what's called a carried interest on the gain of the fund um, over time. So they have operational expenses covered and they're paid to manage and deploy that capital by those management fees. And they have upside in taking a sliver off the top. So that's traditionally how it works. So obviously you invest in lots of companies, the more successful those companies become, the bigger, the larger their valuations, the more successful that venture firm, that venture firm is. I also think our model is a little bit different. We run what's called an evergreen syndicate where it's a master series structure where we have at the top, me and my managing partners, and then we have a bunch of members and we do deal by deal by deal economics. So we don't take management fees or pass through deal fees. 
So our investors aren't our client, the entrepreneur is, and then we um, provide services and capabilities and technology to the entrepreneur. And then we take a sliver on the top on the exits. So our model lends itself to more, you know, help as many entrepreneurs as possible, you know, have a successful outcome for their company, right? Whether that's sustainability, whether that's a small exit, whether that's a big exit or an IPO, um, obviously that's what that's what makes everybody, you know, more successful in rising tides of salt ships. So I guess kind of what you're talking about, I feel like there is um, this like differences between the VC styles of like whether VCs are just providing capital or if it's like capital and expertise. So which one of these models is more successful or is it more complicated than that? It's more complicated. I think the other thing in VC, you got to remember it's stage driven. So, you know, whether you're an early stage venture capitalist, so think, you know, they call it a pre-seed stage or, you know, you, you could be investing in a company that's just some founders and an idea and they haven't even started building their technology and they have no customers and no revenue all the way to their VC firms that only invest in companies doing millions of recurring revenue or 10 million plus of recurring revenue. And then, so you have different stages. You have sort of like seed, you have, you have like friends and family, then you have angel investors and you have sort of pre-seed and then seed investors and you have sort of series A investors and then you have expansion stage investors that are 5 million plus revenue. And then you have growth equity investors that are 10 million plus, then you have private equity at scale, right? So these all mean something a little bit different. So I think they all can provide different resources. The biggest funds in the world can bring more value add expertise and services. But if you're a really small fund, it's hard to hire a lot of people and afford them on the small, smaller management fees, right? So you don't see a lot of really small funds bringing a ton of scalable expertise beyond just their founders or, or partners. Our model is a little different in that, yeah, we are an investment firm, but we call ourselves a vertically integrated strategic growth and investment firm. We're building a company, an operating company that has software and services and then brings capital um, to support the company. So we have to build a scalable, sustainable company providing value to startups everywhere and we don't invest in every one of our engagements. We invest in the early stage B2B SaaS businesses that kind of make it through our gauntlet um, that we choose to invest in. So I wouldn't even call us a venture capital firm per se. It's why we call it strategic growth and investment firm because we're a little different. Um, we're not a traditional fund and all the constructs of that spectrum I mentioned are all, are all funds. Bigger the fund, if you're taking 2% of a billion dollar fund, that's a lot of money per year, right? If you're taking 2% of a $20 million fund, maybe that's a couple employees. So it's a, it's a very different ballgame. Hmm. Yeah, I see. I guess another thing I was wondering is like when you're deciding to invest, especially since your firm does it differently where you're more like strategic or kind of what you described before where you're kind of helping build it. Um, do you like look more into, I was kind of thinking like, actually sort of like when you go into a bookstore right and then yeah. like usually the author name you know if it's a big author it's like twice the size of the book title or something and so usually when i'm going into the bookstore i'll be like oh here's like the new stephen king or jk rowling and i kind of select the books based off of of the author name so like does that translate over to the vc world or in in yours well, the, way, the way it kind of does is like if there's a tier one vc like a sequoia 
or an Andreessen Horowitz or a General Catalyst, right? Or an Excel or a Battery Ventures. Like those, those are like big name brands that other investors might want to invest with. Um, but it's the same is true for the founders. If the founders have started three companies to exits or have a big personal brand or even the company name is is well known because they've done a great job of marketing and building community. Um, all those things kind of go into the blender of decision making. I think for us, we're so early that we don't typically see those big name investors come in till later because again, their funds are so darn large based on the success they've had over decades. So because we go so early for us, a lot of it is finding like, is the founder market fit good? Like, is it obvious why this person's experience, you know, enables them to attack this market opportunity in a way? And then secondly, like, because we try to position ourselves as a, you said strategic, it's a good word for it, but like an operational extension of their team, all of our backgrounds aren't that traditional VC path. We were, we're all operating. I was a chief revenue officer, a chief strategy officer, a CMO, a general manager, you know, had a strategy and product, right? Like that's my expertise. My entire team's built of complementary parts of my CFO, my COO, my CTO, my CMO, right? So we look at it more like, are we a complementary part of this team? And can we see ourselves helping this team get to the next milestone, the next milestone, the next milestone for success? And so we look at all the same things another VC would look at from a market, the tech, the traction, the financials, the team, but then we also have another variant, which is like, can we see this company's future and a path towards it? And can we add, be additive to that journey or not? Because what we don't want is like straight passive, like we write a check just because Sequoia Capital invested. That's like zero fun to us. That's like a, that's like you're a bank, right? We don't want to be a bank. Um, and we don't want to just buy the, you know, the, the, the book by the, you know, by Dan Brown, <laughs> just because Dan Brown wrote good books before doesn't mean he's necessarily great at it now. We want to try to find, yeah, sure, we like repeat entrepreneurs, but we also want to find and support those rising stars, right? So it's it's definitely a balancing act for sure. So I guess how would you find those rising stars then? Is it kind of looking at their technology or is it is it trying to find like values or vision? Like how would you find it's that? It's all those things. So we run a pretty diligent process. A lot of it we stole our company Dyn that we built to 100 million in revenue, we sold to Oracle. Um, and Oracle is a M&A machine. They've bought upwards of 200 companies over the last two decades. And when we sat in Oracle, I've always been angel investing for the last 12 years or so, personally, like moonlighting. Um, you know, I'd evaluate, that would be more based on like personal relationships and intros and other friends who were investing. But angel investing is much different than, you know, now we, we are investing other people's money. So our processes are much more um, rigid, streamlined, um, you know, um, several stages, different people brought in at different stages, different different procedural elements of each stage. So we took a lot from Oracle, of Oracle's corporate development process of how we evaluate inbound opportunities as well as opportunities brought to us by product or engineering um, and streamline that and almost skinnied it down for how do you evaluate really fast and early stage startup. So we run it through a process um, we're on like a VC firm, usually in a VC firm on Mondays, they have partner meetings and the partners do a lot of work and they decide what deals they want to do and they go pitch them to the partnership and they agree that they're either going to do a deal or not. Or not. Um, 
our process is multi-stage where, you know, we create a very large top of funnel. So companies who are listening to this podcast, for example, will come to York IE at the top of the funnel. Say, oh, those guys seem pretty cool. I wonder what they do. And they come to us for capital. They come to us for advice. They come to us to leverage our, our products or subscribe to our newsletter, right? And we put them into the funnel and we have a team, a BD, a business development team that sits in the front and they qualify opportunities and then they pass them off to the right um, people in the organization. So they end up with the right people in the organization. They go to our market analyst team under our VP of investments, Marshall Everson, and then they run through a process and if it gets through that gauntlet, again, all the things you said, market team, tech, uh, financials, traction, um, you know, we look at obviously the innate characteristics, the human, uh, the people we're backing, what they stand for, what their passion is, what their fit is with this company, uh, what their vision is. Um, and then if they like it enough, it then gets exposed to Joe Raska, my co-founder, major partner, COO. And then if they like it, it then comes to me and I'm the CEO, right? The buck needs to stop with me. I'm not going to be hundred percent right all the time. Neither is Joe, neither is Marshall. Um, but we're going to do our best. I mean, we're so early stage, right? There's the earlier you are, the more risky these companies are, right? Um, so we're going to evaluate the best we can. And we do about a deal a month. So we do 12 to 15 investments a year, um, pretty high velocity. We see 175 to 100, give, it, give or take, on the month come into the website or through LinkedIn or through Twitter or social media who are, who are looking for capital. Um, and we just vet them all the way through. We also have a very clear thesis. Um, Ariana, like we're not like investing in consumer or games or, you know, uh, marketplaces or hardware companies. We invest in B2B software, B2B SaaS, recurring revenue businesses. We bias a lot of stuff like down the stack and infrastructure, cybersecurity, uh, developer tools, DevOps, a lot of our backgrounds as operators. Then we'll go up into both horizontal, horizontal and vertical uh, SaaS applications um, that we just really uh, uh, find all those elements that, that make up a great company. Yeah, I guess um, another thing, like when you're investing or deciding to like invest in a, in a, like certain technologies, um, like there are certain technologies that definitely have the potential to be more disruptive, but they're more risky and uncertain. For instance, like quantum, we don't really know where that's going. But then there yeah. are also like technologies that are more near term that they're not going to set the world on fire, but they're more incremental. So as a VC, how do you balance investing between those two things? Well, you know, I think the biggest funds in the traditional venture capitalists are, are swinging for the, the biggest companies they think they can build. Right. So, you know, this is called the power law of venture capital, right? Like every deal they bet on, if they're putting $20 million into a company, they think can be worth a billion dollars, be a unicorn, be a decacorn, right? Our model is a little bit uh, more nuanced in that we just want, if we invest in 15 deals a year, I want 15 deals to succeed relatively, right? Um, and so, yes, some of them might be unicorns or decacorns, but not all 15 need to be, right? Um, so we're betting on these companies, partnering with these companies to help take them on a journey where they can see some light, some relative, and for them, life-changing um, impacts um, financially. Um, and also hopefully have a good time doing it. I mean, startup building is really hard. Um, there's tons of challenges to it. It's just tricky. So when we look at technology, um, we're, again, we're B2B software. We do look at, and we're, and we're go-to-market people, right? We're sales and marketing people. Like we look at things you can sell today, right? Like 
you know, do you have a proven, uh, do you have a strong foundation? Do you know your buyer personas? Do you know the repeatable use cases of your technology? Do you know the value proposition of your technology? Do you have some anchor lighthouse customers across the key verticals you sell to that can be referenceable accounts? I call it the strategic customer trifecta. Do we, is it a name brand logo? Uh, do they pay you a reasonable amount per year? And um, do they business value your service, right? Do they find it a business value, not just technical capacity, right? And that's what we look for. Like, is there some foundation there to then point and shoot, make repeatable and grow? Um, we love companies with massive visions and you know, cybersecurity and protecting against quantum, for example. Um, but is quantum, the risk of quantum five years out, 10 years out, 15 years out, hard to know. So it's fine to have a vision where your technology can protect against quantum, but what can it also protect against today that you can find some product market fit and some repeatability along the path? The best companies we ever see have huge vision, long game, technical innovation, disruption, but they have some practicality um, today that, that unlocks the next stage of opportunity to attack that vision. Those are the types of technologies and capabilities that we like. Uh, a good example is we invested in a company called Pixera. Um, they're out of London and Dubai. Um, they're a virtual reality company, but they're a virtual reality company for safety training in the oil and gas industry. So think major oil and gas companies, all of their staff need to be trained. If you're going into an oil field or on a rig, they literally have enabled the same training you would have had to do in a, you know, in a book in the past or on a boring internet, you know, survey. Now you can do literally digitally in VR, almost like a video game. And it's like, don't touch that, you know, oil canister over there because you might blow up, right? Um, and so again, this is a really practical use of VR. That yes, it's innovative, but it's not like. VR, you know, in the metaverse that might come in 10 years, right? Yeah, so essentially you're looking for companies that have practicalities now, but um, have the potential to, to grow that in the future. Yeah, by nailing what they could do now, that might be a little bit more narrow or niche. And again, a lot of the stuff we do is it's B2B software. It could be boring. I mean, we have a operating system in the pest management industry, right? A software application for pest management companies. We have like so many different investments that, you know, are vertical SaaS. We have a, Uconnect is a great company out of Boston that uh, does uh, software for um, higher ed institutions for career services for talent, right? So again, like they're, they're, they're different companies that they could take that career services down to high schools. They could take it to continuing education. They could take it to nonprofits. Uh, they could take it to private prep schools. They could do tons of different things with it, right? But right now they're focusing on that higher ed university layer career services departments, right? So again, it, it's more about having a very clear execution plan, tying that to a big vision, working your way back. We see so many companies like we're talking quantum, like, all right, well, what are you gonna do now to get there? No clue, but don't you believe me? Like I know what I'm doing. Like I'm technically savvy. We see a lot of product out approaches to company building, then a lot of market in approaches to company building, and we see a lot of companies that you know have like a small vision, very focused. But is it a big company? Is it even venture backable? Like you know, or is this just a small business, right? Um, so I think that's just a, a unique dynamic. But it's when we see the two together, as you articulated nicely, that's when that's when we see the best companies. Yeah, it also sounds like you, I mean, I think you said this earlier, you, you're not like investing in a specific like niche, like you said, you weren't, um, you kind of have like a diverse range of investments. So I was wondering, because like, 
you know, cloud technology has made software, um, like, startups really ramp up. What's what's your strategy if you want to ramp up a hardware startup or a software hardware startup, like making chips or robots, where there's more physical infrastructure needed? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the business model of SaaS is really just recurring revenue. So we're seeing a lot around like hardware as a service and different contract and payment terms for how those you know, services are delivered. You don't just need to sell the hardware as a piece of hardware. Even this phone is a great example, right? Yeah, you might buy the phone, but you know how Apple makes all their money? We're paying for iCloud every month, right? We're buying songs. We're increasing our storage. We're buying Apple TV, right? Like, like so recurring revenue is becoming a component even where there's a hardware cost affiliated with it. And sometimes even hardware is being sold almost in like a you know, leasing perspective or a hardware as a service business model. So I think you're seeing this, this like monumental shift in how buyers buy technology and how companies and sellers sell technology towards this more predictable, repeatable, sustainable, scalable model. A lot of that's also driven by, if you like pay attention to public markets and public markets and tech, I mean, it's the same adventure, but look at the multiples that recurring revenue business models get. The reason they get that is because you can look at the unit of economics of, of how they're acquiring customers and you see the recurring trends based on their retention rates and their net retention rates. So that's their retention plus expansion. And you can predict future of companies, especially as they get to scale and really understand those those economics. So that's why you're just seeing this fast, fast moving where everybody's trying to get recurring. Um, it's just more predictable. Hmm. I guess like speaking of cloud, um, do you think like there's more use of hybrid cloud now or like public cloud or people going back to like private cloud now because of like security or latency issues? It's a great question. So when I was building Dyn, you know, we did DNS, the domain name system as a service. Um, and we had a global edge and, you know, when you'd go to twitter.com, you'd be going through Dyn's network to map the domain name side P addresses. Every company we worked with at Dyn was a modern web brand that was all public cloud public cloud, content delivery networks, you know, web and internet and application monitoring, everything was distributed, everything was global from day one. These were the types of companies that we worked with. Well, then we got bought by Oracle, who comes from a very on-premise, you know, the Oracle database, you know, Oracle applications, they all ran on-premise. And they're in regulated industries, governments, very CIO top-down selling motions. Where the dying selling motion was very bottoms up, sell to a developer, have them land and expand into a bigger account. Right. So inside Oracle, there was this interesting dynamic where we started to see the major enterprises wanted to leverage cloud, but they wanted to do it in a very hybrid way. There were certain workloads that were not going to move from captive data centers and on-premise, but there were certain workloads or pieces of applications that they were going to push to public cloud for latency performance, um, cost, uh, you know, flexibility, but they really were demanding a much more hybrid nature. So I think hybrid certainly the case in highly regulated industries, huge enterprises, monolithic applications, 
But in modern companies that start today, they're they're starting public cloud and scaling public cloud for as long as they can. So speaking of Dyn, um, I was wondering, like, why did you choose Oracle when you were looking at exit strategies for for Dyn? Yeah, so great question. Um, you know, they, they always say that, you know, um, good companies are sold and great companies are bought, right? I think Dyn, I love the company. I spent a decade, 11 years of my life building Dyn and working at Oracle. Um, and, and we had a tremendous run and we were the best in the world at what we did. But a lot of our, our metrics near the end were starting to constrict. It was getting harder and harder at 100 million. There was lots of competition, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Oracle, IBM. All these companies were launching competitive technologies and capabilities. And so we ran a process where we talked to you know, everyone you could think of um, that was up to scale to be able to acquire Dyn. And we were just incredibly impressed by Oracle's processes, um, interest, uh, you know, price point they're willing to pay, speed. Um, they know how to acquire companies really well. Also, strategically, um, we fit so well into their narrative at the time. One thing I recommend to entrepreneurs if you're ever looking to sell your company, it's not just about pitching your company, it's about giving the potential acquirer the strategic thesis of why they should look at you to acquire, right? Tell them why you're strategic to them, right? If you were them, what would you do with you? And for Oracle at the time, they were just building their Gen 2 Oracle Cloud infrastructure. They just started their office up in Seattle, former AWS Azure talent that was hired to lead it. So we came in, that OCI team was right around the same size as Don. So we were able to come in, it was really a great timing, strategic thesis thing. And an existential crisis for Oracle, a 45-year-old company, to basically move you know, on-prem workloads to public cloud and give options to their customer and install base, and then also to better attract more modern new companies. Um, so it was really about strategic thesis mixed with, you know, the speed, the pace, the price, the all the different components that go into it. But we had several suitors, um, and honestly, I wouldn't have changed it. I think it was, it was a great home. Most of the tech talent is still there. Our network edge is Oracle's network edge for DNS performance, security, monitoring to this day. Um, I didn't love uh, how we integrate our business and go to market teams, um, but that's what happens. You know, they've got massive teams in those capacities and you know, um, the, the team that is no longer there is doing incredibly well and the team that's there is doing really well. Right, yeah, I think um, if I remember from my research, I think Oracle switched to like a subscription model for the domain services um yeah we were we were always subscription oh, okay. um, I, yeah we were always subscription they went more um when we went in a lot of the integrated dime products were more usage based um and i think now they offer both um i haven't looked recently but i think now they offer um both of them but we we actually when they acquired us our 100 million arr was all subscription we didn't have any just you know blanket usage consumption scale up scale down um, but modern clouds do, right? That's how AWS, you know, you get into a subscription for discounts or for better services or longer term contracts, but that typically doesn't happen here to some level of end to end scale across storage, compute, networking, DNS, CDN, monitoring, all the capabilities the clouds provide. Oh, I'd also um, like to hear more about or the denial of service attacks against Dyn. 
I think it happened oh, yeah. in 2016. Yeah, 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 it was uh, October 21st, um, 2016. I remember it like it was yesterday. That's also the exact same day we signed the letter of intent to be acquired by Oracle, believe it or not. Um, we used to make jokes that we thought they were they were doing it to us for due diligence, which was <laughs> not the case. Um, but yeah, it was, we, you know, we, we saw denial of service attacks, you know, dozens a week um, the entire time I was at Dyne. Um, but, you know, we were always able to thwart them, defend them. We had so many systems and processes up, our network operations and security operations center teams, just absolutely outstanding, the best engineers in the world, the best DNS experts in the world, um, and they're a globally distributed team, right? That day, though, it was um, the Mirai botnet. It was a distributed denial of service attack. And when I say distributed, distributed far, wide, deep, high volume, high capacity, um, it felt like a whack-a-mole game for our for our developers that day. Um, but you know, I've honestly never been prouder of the team. I and mean, we, most of the team, only like four or five of us knew we were being acquired uh, of of four hundred fifty people. So the stress for us four was intense. Um, but none none of the rest of the company knew. So you know, the heightened level of pressure that we probably placed on everybody and how everyone, again, everyone from like you know, customer success, to sales, to marketing, uh, to communications. Um, I mean, we were doing um, international uh, like press conferences where the press could call in and get our updates throughout the day. We had three letter agencies in, we were hearing from the tops of government. Um, it was insane. I mean, I was on the Today Show. Um, you know, really a wild experience. Um, but we lived to tell about it. Oracle, we got the deal done with Oracle, which is amazing. I'm um, actually the deal signed the definitive agreement only 30 days later, November 21st, which was also weird. My mom's birthday and the day my wife told me we were having our third child, literally the same day. Um, so is this serendipitous the way the world works? Um, you know, fate keeps you balanced. Um, but you know, tons of learning experiences from those attacks and, you know, the engineers, you know, I, I just, I have such an unbelievable amount of respect for all engineering, um, software engineering, but even more so for like technical operations, people the network operations team, they work 24 seven, like fighting the bad guys. And, you know, it's just always nice when the good, the good prevail. So are botnets, um, botnet attacks still a big problem or because of cryptocurrency, is it more ransomware attacks or are they both kind of an issue? Uh, they're all an issue, right? I think ransomware tends to get a lot of the headlines now because it's like people like to hear about like, you know, um, dollars and cents, right? And, you know, taking down servers or web properties, unless it's Amazon or huge ones, um, isn't necessarily news, right? Um, you're seeing like more and more platforms and, and infrastructure providers get attacked uh, too. Um, but you know, the ransomware stuff's real, you know, it's also very real and it's also like very black boxy, you know, like, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to track the source of either these days. Um, hackers are, are getting smarter. Um, but a lot of modern tooling is getting better and better to try to prevent it. So I think it's everything. I mean, we see nation state conflict. We see, I mean, a lot of attacks are just like fat fingering, like, you know, like poor code, you know, you know, API's gone haywire, you know, it's like a lot of different reasons. Um, so, yeah, I think I think both are big problems. Another one that we see a lot, um, we have an investment called Cyberhaven in this area, but like IP theft, like, you know, people like 
stealing documents or leaking sensitive materials or you know, hacking into people's emails, like that type of stuff's real too. So there's lots of threat vectors, lots of great cybersecurity companies. It's why cyber is so damn hot right now. It's also why it's so hard to hire uh, CISOs and cyber talent. Um, because again, there's like so much money on the hacker side, you know, it's like, um, you know, getting these people to come into companies and, and be on the side of good, uh, something we need more and more of. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess another thing I was wondering was, like, why did you choose to start your startup in, like, Manchester, New Hampshire? Well, so Dyne originally was founded at Worcester, Mass, uh, at WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and two of the co-founders were from Manchester, so they moved back to Manchester. And I actually joined Dyne when we went enterprise, so it was a very consumery business, and I joined as its um, head of sales and marketing and then CRO. Um, so, uh, but I, I never thought career-wise I'd be necessarily back in Manchester in tech. I, you know, I had moved to California. I lived in Boston. You know, I just didn't. I wasn't sure, right? Um, once we once we proved it, though, you know, a lot of other startups and technology companies have emerged here. Um, also, the radius of Boston has just expanded into Southern New Hampshire. I mean, I went down to Cambridge the other day. Took me forty-five minutes. You know, no big deal, right? That's a that's pretty short if you think of the distance between San Francisco and San Jose, right? Um, so uh, we think of it almost as as the radius of Boston has expanded, you know, up to Worcester, down to Providence, Rhode Island, up to Portland, Maine, Manchester, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and it's more of a New England ecosystem. The states up here are so close together. So naturally, after the success of Dime, you know, I wanted to parlay that into my vertically integrated strategic growth and investment firm. This is where my home is. It's where I grew up. Um, this is where I want to make a big dent and an impact on. The local community, but also create lots of jobs, lots of lots of wealth, lots of opportunity for others. And you know, I don't know. I think a lot of pride doing that where I grew up, where you know, a lot of my Silicon Valley counterparts or you know, big big cheeses in New York. You know, always told me I couldn't do it. Um, and you know, here we are. And, and and I think that's a chip on the shoulder that is a very entrepreneurial thing. Um, I actually just got off another podcast interview earlier today, and they were in Italy, and you know, they were asking me about emerging markets and. It you know, must be nice to be in the U.S. I'm like, hey, I experienced the same thing, you know, in New Hampshire, and I'm only an hour from Boston, right? So, um, we've also been able to attract a lot of talent. COVID's helped us a lot, honestly. Uh, more and more people have moved out of major markets. And I just met with the CFO of a New York-based company today, a uh, 50 million um, dollar business, and you know, um, doing it from New Hampshire, right? So people are working more remote, more spread out. Um, also looking to get attached to the communities and the ecosystems where they live. So that's the reason I grew up here is, is the simple answer, but um, I think it's pretty damn well connected um, to Boston and New York. So how has uh, COVID impacted open source communities and then like sort of that shift to working to home that you're talking about? Yeah, well, I think there's so much community built up, you know, around, um, around developers and kind of open source, like the Cloud Computing uh, Foundation, Cloud Native Computing Foundation has really rallied a lot of companies and a lot of people uh, to really connect. We're really close with the, the folks at Internet Society as well, Andrew Sullivan, CEO there. So there's lots of great groups that have like turned to a lot of like digital programming and Zoom and community forums. Um, we also work with StackShare. It's one of our investments, which if you don't know, it's really cool. It like measures your technical stack of companies um, so that developers can collaborate cross company. Um, so we're just seeing a lot of tools, a lot of communities, a lot of collaboration, 
uh, you know, obviously heavy embrace and Slack and you know, GitHub and all the different platforms to, to, to collaborate. Um, so it's, it's been interesting. Um, I think COVID's also pushed everybody more remote, even, even if people still go to an office. I was actually at an office for half a day today and then I came home, right? So I think you're seeing a lot more just like employers be a lot more flexible with their talent, which means um, talent needs to be kind of um, more and more accessible on lots of different mediums um, to be productive. Right. Um, I'm sure for some that's very interrupt driven. I'm sure for others it's very freeing. Um, you know, I, for me, I've always worked on the road. I've always been on my phone. I've always been on computers. Like, you know, like this is, this is me. I mean, this is what I've always done. Um, York IE, it's really helped actually, because we're doing a lot of different things. We have a services business, a tech platform, an investments business, like all these different things. And it's really helped us integrate more because like every team needs to help one another. And, you know, we've kind of knocked down the silos and the barriers. Um, but, you know, I think it's I think it's all a good thing. Again, says a guy who wants to live and work in, in not a major market. I think this has been a huge catalyst for um, secondary markets everywhere. So in your work with York Ventures, what are the technologies you kind of see on the horizon really taking off? Or what are like some um, kind of, uh, technologies that students should be sort of investing their education or career into to catch that next wave? Yeah, so I mean, I think students should be, you know, taking advantage of all the education that's put out there across all these major cloud platforms and SaaS providers. Like, there's so much good content out there to learn about, you know, AWS or to learn about Google or Salesforce's ecosystem. Um, so I just think there's a lot out there for students to get smart quick and, you know, take online courses and get certifications and you know, HubSpot, for example, the certifications on inbound marketing, like that type of stuff I think is really cool. And this shows a proactivity for students as they think about their careers. When it relates to, when it relates to technology, I think, you know, um, the beauty of students today is they've spent their whole lives with the internet, right? Like. I literally remember dial-up modems in the 90s. I'm not even that old. I'm 38. Maybe I am old you, but like, you know, literally I can remember like if my mom was on the phone at home, I couldn't go on the internet, right? And then I remember the internet loading like top to bottom, taking forever, right? And look how far we've come, right? I didn't have a cell phone until college, you know? Um, and even in college, I think it was like, like junior year, right? Um, so again, the technology continues to evolve, um, but the beauty of being a student today is you're growing up. It's, it's, it's like, yes, there's new and modern technologies, but the techno that the foundation of the internet and our connected world and, and networks. I mean, think of the internet as, uh, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of carriers and, and networks interconnected with hundreds of thousands of people working on that. And then technologies and capabilities, including crypto being built upon that foundation. That, that's a really amazing time to be alive, right? So kind of embrace all the capabilities, the education out there, um, and, and, and also like play the long game on it, right? I've, I've always been one to try to follow the trends, stay one step ahead of the trends, always be reading. I call it being the most prepared person in the room. Um, always be well-read, always be curious, um, and you'll be incredibly, incredibly successful for it. So I'm a senior right now, so I'm like applying to a lot of colleges. And I did notice there's a lot of them are offering these entrepreneurship programs now 
Do you think this is a skill you can learn in school, or is it something you have to learn through experience and doing? Uh, I think both. I mean, all, all of the above, right? I mean, some people are born into it. <laughs> um, some people are naturally have it. Some people um, get degrees in it or are part of programs for it. Some people trip into a job in a startup and love it, right? Some people go to a big corporate, spend 20 years and say, I want to change, right? So I think it's a little bit all the above. I do think entrepreneurship, um, I always say hire for startup DNA, right? There's a risk tolerance. There's a um, malleability and flexibility. Like, you know, sometimes I forget this, but like a really early stage startup, like call it like three to five people or 10 people is very different than a hundred person startup is very different than a 500 person startup. Like what is the definition of a startup anymore? What is the definition of entrepreneurship? Right? Like, you know what I'm saying? So like, I think you, you innately need to have some level of DNA. Um, but that also means that, that, that when I say that, I mean, literally like quit your job, start a company or join a three, five, 10 person company. Like, is this not a lot of resources? It's a very different career track for to go work at Oracle or Fidelity or Liberty Mutual or Microsoft than it is going and working at a small, you know, startup that's barely funded, right? So, um, but I would recommend embracing all those things. See what you like. Um, it's not for everybody, but you know, embrace them and, and, and use it the same way I was talking about reading or certifications to learn. Um yeah, definitely. Yeah, that is interesting to think about, like the fact that some of it is like you got to take that risk, I guess, if you if you want to do it. Like eventually, you have to take that leap. The problem is that a lot of young people and a lot of older people, honestly, see the headlines of the successes, right? And it looks so glamorous if you become super successful, you know, create tons of jobs, have a IPO, or sell your company to Oracle and make a bunch of money. It's really, 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 really hard. Right. It's even hard to be a main street entrepreneur with a restaurant or a retail store or a bar. Right. Like it is very, very hard. Like you got to look in the mirror every night and you're accountable to the outcomes and the results. And you're, you know, I always tell people to join startups. Like they're always like, is this the right startup to join? It's like, well, depending on how early you go, you're actually betting on yourself more than you are the startup. So are you as good as you think you are? Right. Prove it. Right. And this is hard for people to adapt to and have to live that life. I mean, there was a time, not to scare your student listeners, but like there was a time in my late 20s where things were really hard in my company, dying, scaling. I was getting migraines all the time. Never had migraines before that, never had migraines since. I felt like I was losing control. It was very stressful. The weight of the board and the investors was, I felt like it was all on my shoulders, the success or failure of the company I felt responsible for. And, you know, I went, I literally went and got an MRI, MRI on my brain and they're like, you just have anxiety and stress, dude. Like, like t- take a breath, like work out more, you know, like have some perspective, try to step out of it, try to regain control. Um, and you'll be fine. Right. And, and sure enough, you know, the moment I got my act figured out, I I've been healthy, um, knock on wood ever since. So again, that's just an example though of how hard it is. And I think, People need to talk about entrepreneurship, especially for founders and executives and really early stage employees and acknowledge the mental health challenges of it um, because it, it really is hard. And, and so people look at me now, they're like, oh, he got lucky or, you know, it comes so easy to him or oh, it must be nice to be able to run this new firm his way in Manchester, New Hampshire. Again, 
very, very, very difficult to get here. And even today, tons of challenges in my day-to-day, tons of challenges in my business, tons of challenges in my three young kids, balancing that, my marriage, right? Like, is this a lot, right? So again, it's it's part of your DNA. Doesn't mean you can't get smarter or learn about it, but the leap to be a founder or like a first five employee is different than joining a 100-person startup. So make sure you figure out what's right for you and what your risk calculus and, and I guess I guess ability to handle stress uh, actually is. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess another thing I was thinking about is like increasingly women are getting more interested in entrepreneurship, but you know, I'm reading a lot of articles where they're running into issues with bro culture. So how do you foster a more inclusive environment that promotes equality and diversity? Yeah, so um, I think you have to actually put words into action, right? So our CFO is a woman, our chief of staff is a woman, our head of advisory services is a woman, Our we have a bunch of investment partners who are women, advisors who are women, our new head of HR who starts in uh, January is female, I think about 50 or 60% of our company is female. Um, this is a huge problem though in tech and venture, right? Female diversity in general, that's race, ethnicity, uh, even age. Um, very challenging in both startup life and venture. Actually, very challenging also in New Hampshire. We don't have a lot of diversity up here. Um, you know, so I think like something only like 10% or so of, of folks in New Hampshire are non-white, right? So so it makes it even more difficult. So you really have to put together proactive programs and actually put into action. So we've invested in a bunch of companies that have female founders. Um, we help them recruit executives who are female or black or brown or diverse or old or young, like to, to again, have a well-rounded company with well-rounded uh, points of views and perspective. All of those things though, in any company start at the tippity top, right? If the CEO doesn't care about those things, they'll be what they are. If they care about those things, it'll be diverse and they'll figure it out over time. And it's not always perfect, right? Like I know right now we're very, very white, right? Um, but we have plans in place to make sure we bring in all different types of races, ethnicities, backgrounds into our mix. Um, we have an Indian development office, for example, that we're, we just launched a few months ago and we're growing that team over there. So maybe it isn't all gonna be in New Hampshire as well. So these are all the things that start at the top. Um, you need to be very proactive and you need to be very action oriented. Also needs to be very authentic and genuine. You can't just do it to do it. Um, it, has to, it has to be for real because you actually care. People step that out big time too. Yeah, so thank you so much. Um, I know you're pretty busy, so I'll kind of wrap this up with one final question of, um, I guess like through your expertise with you know, making all your startups and then also launching this VC firm, um, what are what are any like thoughts of advice for young people? Yeah, so the two core values that I always talk about living by are be loyal and play the long game. So. I think loyalty is incredibly important, not just in business, but in all of life, right? Give loyalty, get loyalty, give loyalty, get loyalty, right? If you expect something from a mentor, be loyal to them. If you want loyalists someday, be loyal to them, right? So I think mentor-mentee collaboration, cross-collaboration with peers is something in the classroom, right? It's something on sports teams, in, in, in the glee club, in the band, whatever the heck you're into right? Um, that level of loyalty, respect for people. Playing the long game is something I recommend. It's especially true for young people. Have a vision for yourself, for your, for your career, for your family. Where do you want to be? 
you know, plot it out, you know, have a big vision for the long term. I have a big vision for the very long term. Make sure everything you do from now to then is in the guardrails of that vision that helps you achieve that, that vision and unlock milestones along the way. No different than a startup needs to do, right? So do that for yourself. Um, you'll be just fine in your career. Do that as a startup founder. You'll be just fine in your startup. Um, so those, those two pieces of advice, being loyal and playing the long game are, are two things I think are really critical for, for, especially for young people. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Really I really enjoyed it, I'm, I'm thankful to be here and um, I have a lot of respect for you for doing this, for, so thank you. Thank you so much.